We've been practicing together now for a day or so, and in some ways it's a short amount of time, in other ways it can seem like a vast amount of time. And there's always a, a sense as I come to sit and uh, offer some reflections in the evening, a sort of kind of having spoken to just a few of you so far, sort of wondering, well, how is everybody? What's going on? What's happening? And of course, for each of us, we have our own particular journey, the way this particular retreat is for us, has its own particular trajectory. And yet there's equally something of a, a shared and a common thread, I think, and many common threads, in fact, that weave together to, to bring the frame of the retreat into focus and to kind of show or to perhaps reveal to us what, what's going on at a deeper level. One of the things that we have the opportunity to, to contemplate when we come into a, a container and a context of spiritual practices, what's really important for us? What's at the heart of my life? And what would support and enable me to stay close to that which I care about most deeply? What feels important, we could say, what matters? And we, we start with this kind of curious thing whereby we just come and sit and stand and walk, really doing nothing. And it looks like it should be a relatively straightforward exercise if you were to describe it to someone. And yet, you know, interestingly, they, uh, they did this survey, um, or the study, in fact, in, in America a few years ago, where people were invited to just sit in a room on a chair and do nothing for 15 or 20 minutes, maybe a little longer. And they were told not to think, not to do anything, just to sit there. And they were also offered the option, which they'd all tested out beforehand, that if, if you'd like, you can give yourself an electric shock. Just a moderate one. And most of them had tried it before, the, and they said, mm, don't like that, it's not very nice, no, I don't want that. They said, well, it's just there. And what was really curious in the study, when people were invited to just sit down and do nothing for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, a rather surprisingly large proportion of them at some point in that period of time decided, oh, I think I'll give myself a shock. <laughs> Despite having previously decided that that wasn't something they really wanted to experience again. And it's kind of amusing in one way, and it's also kind of, I think, informative as to, oh, it looks like this should be a really simple thing, just to sit around, you know. The teacher said, don't have to do anything, you're not trying to get anywhere. No one's marking your results in case you're wondering. And yet for us, it's not easy to be in a situation like this. And that's reasonably apparent to most of us. It's not always that it's challenging or difficult. I'm not suggesting that we've been sitting on our cushion sort of itching for the opportunity to administer some electricity to ourselves. And Though we might sometimes think, oh, you know, is something else needed to be added here? So we, we start to, 
we engage in a meditation practice which has its own importance and trajectory but we also engage in the context of a retreat which is this process of opening ourselves to what it means to be a human being and often we're sort of thinking about the meditative piece because that's how we're doing it that's what we're engaging in of course and rightly so but we're encountering our life at the same time in a perhaps more unfiltered way there's a story about a businessman who's going to an important meeting in the country and in the countryside and in the course of the journey realizes at some point that he's lost and so he stops and asks uh, a man working in the field he says can you tell me the way to hazel lodge i have an important meeting i've got to get there soon and the man working in the field says sorry no i don't know actually any place called hazel lodge and the um the businessman says, well, um, can you tell me the name of the street that I, I'm driving on, this road? And he said, actually, no, sorry, I, I don't know the name of the road. And, and the businessman's starting to feel agitated because he's lost. He, he, he's, he's, um, he says, well, can you, can you tell me what's the nearest town to, that this road will take me to if I follow it? And, 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 the, and the, the man in the, working in the field says, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not sure. There's lots of ways that road could take you. I don't know. And, and the, the, the first gentleman starting to feel quite frustrated. He says, well, you don't seem to know very much at all, do you? And the second chap, he says, well, but maybe that's true, but I'm not lost. <laughs> and this encounter with our life and finding our experience as it appears to us here in some ways has something in common with that we find ourselves where we are we don't always know where that is or what direction to go or even how to describe the place we're in and it's easy to sometimes blame ourselves or the world or others for this to feel like somehow it's my fault or it's their fault that it's like this. There's something appropriate about taking responsibility here and saying, oh, wow, much of the time we don't know where we are. We're lost in unconscious patterns of reactivity and habitual thinking, of memories of past, of fantasies of future. And to take responsibility for this doesn't mean we judge or blame ourselves. We don't say, oh, that's bad. We might see that there's something limiting about it or unsatisfactory about it. But it's like to understand what's happening here, we have to meet it from a place of openness, this experience. There's a, there's a sort of a, a we'd say, a, a, a teaching within the uh, the Stoic tradition is so one of the ancient Greeks' philosophical traditions. And I'm in no way a, a student or a, in any way an expert on, on that tradition or teaching. But I once heard from within that body of, of wisdom this particular phrase and frame that said, those who are unlearned 
blame others. Those who are learning blame themselves. Those who have learned blame no one. And I think it's a really important, concise expression of something that, that's significant here, a really useful expression, that, that often when we're kind of, when we don't contemplate our experience, we don't look carefully, we tend to think it's happening because it's someone's fault. It's either my fault because I messed up or did something wrong, or it's their fault because they messed up or did something they shouldn't have, whoever they might be in our world, in our life. And then as we start to engage in some contemplation, some reflection and some inner development, we start to see that, oh, we're actually contributing to what's happening in a significant way. And we easily tend to judge ourselves. We tend to think, oh, it's something wrong with me, or I'm doing it wrong, or it shouldn't be this way because of something that I'm responsible for by myself. As we go more deeply into spiritual practice, as we come to understand the nature of the process of what's taking place that we get a window into through, through this practice, we perhaps start to recognize that it's not particularly useful or accurate to blame others or ourselves for the condition we find ourselves in. What's useful, what's helpful is to look and see what's happening here. What's going on that my life is the way that it is? Because I care about this. Because it touches, it impacts me. It touches and impacts others and my world. And what we can see in terms of the primary patternings that we'll encounter inevitably in one shape or form or another in the context of practice we'll see that so much of the time the lostness we experience when we get pulled into mental activity that becomes unconscious where it's almost like we submerge and we're, we're lost in it. We don't quite know what's going on. That there, we're in the grip of particular patterns and forces that arise in the heart and mind in the form of Aversion of not wanting certain experiences and fearing their occurrence or their reoccurrence. And of wanting, craving for certain experiences and attempting to hold on to them or reproduce them in some way or form. And in, in those particular patterns we find ourselves compelled to be looking into the past to see what happened and why it happened and how it happened so that we can figure out what caused the things that we wish to avoid in order to avoid them in the future. And so we can figure out what caused the things that happened in the past that we liked, so we can work out how to repeat them in the future. And this way in which we become lost in thinking about, lost in the past, lost in the future, this is one of the primary dynamics we encounter when we engage in practice, when we're given the simple instruction, okay, just bring your attention to the immediate experience, to where you are here, now. Just letting the past and the future not be so central. We encounter this, this pull. And we see 
towards the past, towards the future, towards something we want, towards something we don't want. And this is how it is for us much of the time. There's a wonderful story I heard told by the Dalai Lama. I didn't hear him tell it directly. It was related by a friend to whom it was told. Um, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's you know, a well-regarded meditation practitioner, shall we say. Um, and it involved a visit that His Holiness made to a monastery in America. Um, it was a, a Christian monastery in which they, they had a couple of industries that supported them. And one of them was that they made cake and they sold it in the local markets. And it was, you know, it was, it was known to be a nice enough cake. But they made this cheese and it was this famous cheese. And people were so proud of it in the monastery. And it, was, it won awards and, you know, in competitions around the country. And His Holiness described this day where he was visiting, they were showing him, and every time they took him somewhere or brought him somewhere, they'd often bring him a piece of the cheese. And it was this really special cheese. They were, and, and he said, you know, they kept offering me this cheese, and it was wonderful. It was really nice cheese. But he said, but the whole day, I just wanted a piece of cake. And there's something I think really helpful and healthy for us and hearing a story from you know someone who's been practicing a long time to say, oh yeah, that kind of tendency to want something that isn't the thing that I've got, that's probably going to keep coming for a little while yet. And so then we want to just be really interested. So, so what goes on in that? What goes on in that process that we sometimes be become caught in, carried away by. There's often a sense we have that's not something we've quite fully seen or recognized that somehow we're trying to get somewhere or we're trying to get something or we're trying to become someone other than where we are, than what we've got, than who we already are. To get something we haven't got to, be, to get somewhere that we're not, to become someone other than who and what we are. That pressure is something that we don't always recognize and see, and yet it's often what's driving our lives. And uh, a couple of people reflected in the, in the small group this afternoon, the sense of the, the way that being in silence together, at some level, without realizing it was going to be the case, is kind of this relief of having to perform being somebody for everybody else. Because we're not talking. We don't have to show up and tell each other you know, all the things we've done with our life, lovely as that can be at times, but also pressured as that can be at times. And it, it kind of points to this underlying human tendency of somehow trying to, to get or to become something other than what we have or where we are or what we already are in ourselves. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So much of our lives are driven by this momentum of trying to get from wherever we are to somewhere where we think we should be, trying to become a version of ourselves that we imagine we're supposed to be. And it's so tiring. So sometimes when we come on a retreat and we're just you know, sitting around and, you know, if you describe to someone what we did today, oh, well, we sat around, you know, 30, 40 minutes, 
and we're told not to do too much, just notice what was going on. And we got up and we walked back and forth, didn't go very far, we were told not to rush, not to hurry, you know, it didn't matter if we didn't get very far, in fact it was even a good idea. And we stood around doing nothing for a little while, then we sat down, and we got up again, did the same. I was exhausted. (laughs) And our friends would go, really? How did that happen? If they've not done this before. And if they've done this before, they'll know exactly what you mean. They go, oh yeah, it's hard, isn't it? And so we notice the sense often of how we're kind of leaning forward. It's like, oh, there's a meditation we're sitting, okay? The sitting's all right, yeah, it's good. It's good for a while anyway. And then we start to think, oh, it might be finishing soon. And start to feel ourselves feeling like, can I look at my watch? It's a bad idea to look at your watch because you look at your watch and you realize, oh, there's still another five minutes to go. Oh, it's not too bad. And five minutes later, you look at it again and there's still four and a half minutes to go. You know, and it's like, oh no, can I make it? Sometimes it's better not to go there. But there we are, sometimes we do. But that sense of leaning forward and it's like, oh, the walking will be better. Great, we get to the walking, you know, it's, it's good, I'm sure. Oh, God, it's kind of not much happening, you know. It's kind of, do I have to do this for 40 minutes, really? And then we start to think about lunch, oh, lunch, lunch, great, oh, lunch, yeah. <laughs> and of course we get some and it's great, and it's yummy, or, or maybe it's not to our taste, but I enjoyed the lunch today. But for how long do we stop and actually taste the lunch? before we're thinking about the cup of tea afterwards or what I'm going to do, I'm going to need a nap after eating all this lunch or I wonder if there'll be enough for seconds. It's like we can't quite stop. Even with something we're enjoying, it's so hard to catch that momentum. And it's not like we're supposed to just stop. It's not like something we can switch off. But we start to notice it and feel it and sense it and keep just coming back into our experience. Keep coming back into what's happening right here. The way we move in that sort of patterning, that sense of trying to get somewhere, trying to produce an experience, trying to keep hold of an experience, trying to get to the place where it's okay. It always got this sort of promise to it that when you get there, then you can stop. Then you can pause. Then you can ah, relax. But the funny thing is that wherever you get to from that place, from that orientation of trying to get somewhere, as soon as you get there, you start to notice somewhere else you could get to. Have you you seen that happen? It's like just the mind does that. It goes, oh, we've got here. Oh, we can get there. And that sense of momentum, if it's not questioned, leads to a world in which we find ourselves speeding up, accelerating, consuming and attempting to metabolize more and more and more to the point in which we're just so full. We can't digest our life. And so coming into an empty or relatively empty space like this, where we're not trying to get somewhere so much or goes or there's not so many strong messages affirming that tendency even some encouragement to step back from it so we start to feel initially the the way that moves in us and it's uncomfortable to sit still while all that churning momentum keeps turning at some level it seems easier just to get up and go and follow it but 
if we do, and so far as we have done most of us much of our lives, it just keeps amplifying and accelerating. And so there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a courageous kindness that we express to ourselves by saying, okay, I'm going to sit here and let that momentum be felt without having to act on it to try and somehow make it feel less uncomfortable with the hope and the promise of it somehow resolving or coming to the end. Because it doesn't in that way come to an end. There's a wonderful story told about Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, a teaching figure in the Sufi tradition, who's regarded as both a, a wise man and as a fool. And on one occasion, Nasruddin is sitting in the market square on the day of the, the big sort of town market, and he has a large pile of chilies in front of him. And he's eating them, and his face is flushed, his nose is running, he's not looking very happy. And some of his friends come up to him, there's this woman who knows him, she comes up and says, Nasruddin, Mullah, what are you doing? And he looks at her and he says, and he, he picks up one of the chilies and eats another one, and his whole body shakes, and he says, I'm eating these chilies. And she looks and she says, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? And Nazareth picks another one up and he says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. There's something kind of touching about the hopefulness of the human spirit in the way that we keep imagining that if I just find the right thing, that's going to do it for me. If I just get to the right place, if I just configure the right circumstances that will be it and of course there's a value and a place for cultivating what is wholesome for bringing together what supports us and what supports others and our world of course but at some level we also have to engage with the with the reality that particular experiences don't ever do it for us in that way all the experiences we've had in our lives so far if they'd done it for us, we'd have stopped. We'd say, oh, great, done it now. And yet somehow the idea that some more of them, or some different ones, is somehow going to do that for me? Again, there's a kind of a touching, sort of innocent quality in the hopefulness. And there's a, a way in which we also have to look with some, I think, real care at how that tendency feeds the momentum of our lives and how that momentum takes us away actually from its greater possibilities. So just allowing ourselves to be here in the midst of all of this, in the midst of what's here, Allowing ourselves to explore what, what's going on. To notice how we, how we become interested in this context and, and what could provide me some entertainment. You know, how many times we might have walked over to the notice board on the way past and look and see if there's a new notice. 
you know, there isn't. Or maybe there will be at the end of the day. But it's like things that we wouldn't normally bother with being interested in suddenly become interesting. Now we've carefully looked at the map for how to go for a walk. We're not planning on going for a walk, but we've looked at it and it's a nice green line going around some contours and, you know, and it's like, and there's this sense of, oh, great. Now I know if I need to go for a walk, that's where I go. Of course, you go out the door, turn left. If you keep going left, you'll come back to where you started. Same if you go right. But there's that sense of we're kind of not easily able to be in the condition of just being a human being. And as we give ourselves permission to, and we begin to create supportive structures and in a way cultivate that very capacity, we find that we are able to more and more be here. And there's a way in which giving ourselves permission to explore the territory, to see, so what's useful here? What works? What's helpful? So there's many things that people who've done this before, like Julia and myself and other teachers, will say to you that may well be helpful for you. Absolutely. But in the end, we have to check out and see, so what's actually useful here for me? What actually works? And it's helpful in the beginning to not too much try and get an answer to that question, just to engage in the forms, in the instructions, in the schedule pretty much as it's offered, making some adjustment as needed for your circumstance and situation, but just seeing, because that's how we learn. And yet, at the same time, not imagining we're here to get it right or to do it perfectly. The only way we learn in life is by being open to the possibility that we might not do it perfectly the first time. And we don't have to. That quality of of play that says, oh, let me explore. Let me see what goes on here. Ultimately, everything is useful. Everything is useful. Because if we explore a certain way of practicing... And we find that it's useful. It's useful, obviously. But if we explore a certain way of responding to an experience, we find it's not useful. Oh, we've learned something about what's useful or what's not useful. Huh, that's useful. From that point of view, everything has its place and its value. And so then we can start to orient to our experience, not in terms of success or failure, performance or sort of mistakes but in terms of what what can be learned here what can be learned here one of the fundamental teachings and understandings that the buddha offered through his experience and his understanding was that our life and our world and our experience is shaped by what we give attention to and how we give attention to it. So we're engaged in this process where it seems like the world sometimes happens to us 
or it sometimes is created by us. Neither of those things are entirely the truth of it. But what we can start to notice is that what we give attention to and how we give attention to it profoundly affects the way our world and our sense of ourselves and therefore our life arises. So the training of our attention, which is the the foundational practice of just engaging with this possibility of voluntarily and consciously choosing to pay attention in a certain way. This is about beginning to empower ourselves in a transformative way in relationship to the dynamic of how our life and our world and our experience arise. Because we can't control so much of what happens. That's one of the things that we find when we practice meditation. We're not in control even of what our mind does half the time, let alone anything more distant from that. But who here has been able to tell their mind, okay, let's just be quiet and peaceful for the next 45 minutes. Thank you. And at the end of 45 minutes, oh, that was nice. Let's do it again next time. It doesn't happen that way, does it? Of course, we would all, well, imagine most of us at least, would quite like to be calm and peaceful for 45 minutes. But sometimes we're agitated. Sometimes we're sleepy. Sometimes we're irritated. Sometimes we don't really care anymore. And so there's this this situation where we see that what's most fundamentally important is what we care about deeply, the condition of our heart and our mind. It's not in our control. We can't just make it be a certain way. But nor is it outside our influence. And this is critical. So we can start to explore then Oh, what happens if I give attention to this? Oh, so if I keep giving attention to the sense of my body and my breathing and I keep noticing when my attention goes into thinking or reactions or memories or stories or you know, thinking of all the ways the guy house could be just a little bit different than it is. You know? Those chairs, they're really nice, but you know, the upholstery is a bit dodgy or you know, whatever it might be that where your mind goes. I don't think that much about chairs. But sometimes. And just, okay, what if I just keep coming back? What happens? What we notice is the ability for our attention to steady and sustain begins to grow. And the pull and the power that so many things have upon us starts to diminish because we can actually orient ourselves to something more simple that allows a sense of connection and begins to invite a possibility for an intimacy and an openness and a caring for our experience through coming into contact with the breathing, with the body, with the immediacy of where we are now. Possibilities start to open up for us because the way in which attention is captured by reactivity, by habits and patterns that we didn't decide to cultivate or develop, that we somehow absorbed from our world and those around us and have replicated unconsciously for much of our lives. 
we start to actually be able to see them more clearly. Initially, it's uncomfortable to see them. We don't really want to see them. We'd rather not see them. But it's actually really helpful to begin to see what's happening without judging ourselves for it. Just saying, oh, okay, this is what's happening. Hmm, okay. This quality of attention without judgment, without rejecting what's happening, but just becoming interested, oh, what's happening here? Kind of is one of the the aspects of what just naturally begins to develop as we practice, without even trying to look too carefully, just with the willingness to keep coming back into our experience, to come close to, to be intimate with the simplicity of the body and the breathing and the immediacy of our experience right here and right now. Not because the body and the breath are somehow more important than anything else, but because they provide a framework in which we're more able to connect and to sustain that connection in the face of the forces of reactivity. Ultimately, of course, all experience offers us the opportunity to connect in that way. But it's really helpful just to simplify things to begin with, and whether that's beginning our meditation practice in our life, or just in the beginning of a retreat, which may be in the context of our ongoing meditation journey. And so we give a lot of emphasis to this, the sense of just connecting, just landing, and noticing what happens. That that is where we actually start to make helpful, skillful responses from. And it's a bit like training a puppy. If you've ever had opportunity to engage in such a thing, or for myself recently with a friend of mine who was training a a young four-legged companion. Um, And uh, the wisdom of it, of these days, which maybe wasn't the case when I was young, I remember, but um, it was, you know, with with the, uh, the young dog, that you understand it's not just going to hang around with you. It, it kind of runs off and you call it back. And you say, come back, come back. And when it comes back, you give it a little treat. And then it runs off again and you see what it's up to. And then you call it back and you call it back. And that process of calling it back and giving it a little treat, just saying, well done for coming back. Not giving it a hard time for running away. It's like that with our mind. If we were to imagine it like training a puppy. A puppy doesn't know what to do. Our mind actually, strangely, curiously, until it's trained, it's at the mercy of its own patterns. But we see it goes off somewhere. We say, heal. We say, come here, be here. It goes off somewhere. If when it goes off, we say, bad dog. If we judge ourselves, if we give ourselves a hard time, pretty soon... The puppy thinks, hmm, that's not very friendly, that character. I think I'm getting away as soon as I can. At every opportunity, I'm out of here. When we kind of react to our own mental activity in that way, it feeds the tendency for it to spin away. 
If what we see, however, is when we see, oh, oh, look, oh, that's where you've gone. Oh, okay, come back here. Oh, you've done one of those. Oh, come back here. You know, whether chasing a butterfly, watering a tree, or leaving a little surprise parcel behind. You know, the puppy of our mind, which does all those things. If one can say, oh, there you are, come here. In a kindly way. It's like the treat one offers in the actual training of a, of a young dog. That's understood. This is what actually works for creatures. And we're creatures too. We start to make it like, oh, rather than, oh my gosh, you were gone for how long? How many times? It's like, oh, you're back. You know, it's something mysterious. It's remarkable. Have you thought about this? You don't need to think too much about it. But when we're gone, you know, it's not really a problem because we don't even know we're gone. The moment we realize that we're gone, we're not gone anymore. We had to actually come back. We had to wake up. We had to become conscious to notice that. So one could actually celebrate that and say, wow, look, I'm back. And the moment we realize that we were lost, we're back. And what's most remarkable is that we didn't do that because by definition we weren't there the moment before. That's what being lost in unconsciousness is. And yet somehow the light comes back on. We go, huh, I was thinking about what happened to me when I was eight. Or I was imagining what's going to happen to me in ten years' time. Or maybe as we practice a bit more, I was remembering what happened in the last sitting. And now I'm wondering what's going to happen in the walking following. And we see our frame of past and future gets a little closer to where we are over time. But in the noticing of that, in the seeing of that, it's like, oh, okay. Here we are. And sometimes what we're experiencing is not easy for us to open to, to include. Sometimes the mind is full of energy. And we could perhaps reflect usefully on the sort of a proverb that comes from, from India, at least as I was told it, which I guess it's a proverb, or something like that, which, which basically says, how do you cage Oh, sorry, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? And the problem, of course, is that a rogue bull elephant can trample any fence you can build. So how do you fence one in? And the answer is by putting it in a really large field. When we give enough space to the activity that's going on, there's no need to break out of it. We don't push away so much. So when, if we feel like we're encountering something that's really strong, that's really difficult, what's actually helpful for us is just to give it space rather than trying to control it and contain it. And sometimes what that will involve is just noticing how it feels in my body and asking, how much space does this need? How much room does this need? Feeling the ground beneath us and just coming back to that be so helpful. That's part of why we train and cultivate that sense of just feeling the ground. 
because when if we're under pressure when we're impacted by something that carries some charge for us often that's what we want and need to remember okay just come back okay I'm here at a certain simple fundamental level okay I'm here and I can rest in this I can rest in this So what's also really helpful to see is how we, as well as the way we can sometimes struggle with our experience, to see how we're often constantly involved in a process of somehow trying to use it to form a conclusion about who we are or how we're doing. And again, it's completely understandable, but it's not a reliable process. You know, it's such a common thing that someone will describe having some way through the day, some way through a meditation period, opened their eyes and looked around, and everybody else is sitting really calm, seem really steady and bright, and the person just thinks, oh gosh, look, everybody else can do it. You know, it's like I'm sitting here and it's like 58 almost enlightened Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. And it's like... And that sense that everybody else is really doing it and I'm not. Of course, probably a few moments later, that person having given up completely and sort of, sort of slumped into a motionless stupor, someone else looks over and thinks, wow, they're really still. They're sitting really quietly. They haven't moved for a while. And we create these stories about others and about ourselves to see that tendency of course it goes the other way as well you know there's this uh, again very familiar experience to many who have described this kind of a thing where we we're sitting and it's it's hard work doing what we're doing it feels like oh god you know is, is there ever going to be a moment where i notice two breaths in a row or three breaths in a row of course someone else will think god just noticing one breath would be good but we might suddenly find that for a few moments we settle in and it's like, huh, oh, oh wow, okay, I've landed. Mm, oh, oh, this is working. Oh, yeah, the teachers were right. Yeah, the Buddha, wow, yeah, good stuff. And within a moment we start to think, oh, it's a bit of a short retreat. You know, maybe I should sign up for that month-long one or, you know, maybe, maybe I'll... I'll, I'll I'll, I'll go to the monastery and put on a robe and we just have this vision of sitting in a cave and you know there's sort of all our supporters outside and there's sort of this glowing light coming out and then we suddenly realize oh oh my gosh meditation fantasy oh no look at me I'm just completely hopeless can't do it at all and in the next moment I'm terrible and I think I'll go home I'm out of here I can't I'm not going to stay this another another minute and we have an experience we imagine its continuity and then we project an identity or a status or a definition onto ourself based on it. Here in terms of being a good meditator and therefore soon to be a, a you know, beloved spiritual teacher of the world. Or, you know, 
terrible meditator, can't do this, must well go home and you know, give up on any hope of spiritual development. And those ways in which we take our experience and try and make something of it beyond what it is, as a way of somehow providing a frame to define or to know or to hold what we are. It's something, again, just to see, to hold with, in a sense, a sort of a wry humor. It's like, look what our minds do. You know, someone once said, you know, the mind's, mind is shameless in that sense. Look what it gets up to. As we start to see this more, and as we can not, in a way, hold it against ourselves that this is what we encounter, we're more and more able to stay with it. And we start to see that actually I can bring some care to this experience. I can notice how it's uncomfortable or there's an insecurity in me or a fear or a hope that eventually people are going to see that I'm actually quite a nice human being and they're going to love me. And of course, we understand these things. They're natural. Pretty much everyone has some version of them. But that actually by noticing, by meeting, by feeling, by coming into contact with the experience, we start to create a field in which there is more kindness. And in which there's a sensitivity and an openness that starts to touch us. In which we recognize as having some profound value even though we might not have words for saying what that is or why that is or how it even looks, but we know it. And again, in the course of the day, there will have been moments where we just sensed and felt and go, huh. even if we didn't tell a story about it or even remember it for very long, inevitably, because this is something as human beings that were calibrated to be touched by. And to allow ourselves to be touched by our life requires ourselves to be here for it. It's no doubt challenging to do what we're doing. No one is suggesting otherwise. You know, it's always easier, it would seem, to be unconscious and fall asleep in a moment than to make the effort to stay awake. It's always easier in each moment to do that, it seems, but actually to live our life in a habitual, unconscious, reactive cycle, that's much more difficult. And so we make the effort on a moment-to-moment level to see how fully we can come into contact with, be present with, awaken to our experience. Understanding that that is something that ultimately serves our well-being and our capacity equally to serve the well-being of others in the world.
It requires a, an honoring of ourselves, in fact, to give attention here to this, to what's happening. It's like the very act recognizes that there's something of value here. I think I may have used the phrase of, of giving attention. I can't remember if I spoke about it actually. But you know, we're sometimes told to pay attention. And that's sort of the image I have of sort of like the, the schoolroom experience of the teacher saying, you know, kid, pay attention. I don't want to pay attention. It's boring or it's too difficult or whatever. And it's like something that's extracted from us or that's demanded of us, that's kind of in a kind of coercive relationship, like we have to pay. It's what payment is like. It's a transaction that we abound into. And this is, you know, attention is something that signifies what we give value to. And in giving value to something, giving attention to something, not only is it acknowledging that we give it value, but its value is enhanced, increased, developed. The very act of offering our attention to our experience allows its value to be both recognized, but also it amplifies it. Because each moment, each experience, each breath is both the experience that we can connect with or an experience that we connect with, but equally it's a base and a frame for understanding more than just that. For touching and being touched more deeply than just what the content of the experience offers. Because the very act and process of connecting with, of opening to, and becoming, in a caring way, interested in what's happening here. This is transformative and profoundly powerful. And so we, we cultivate, we develop, we give ourselves to this again and again to see what this might offer. Not as a transaction, not that we're doing a deal somehow, but because we start to understand that in fact the giving of ourself here, this is actually how we receive our life. Giving our attention to what is arising, to what's happening. This is how our life is actually nourished. And through this, we start to sense the possibility of, of a life that is founded in, in a sense of caring, in a deep recognition of its preciousness. And that there is the possibility to know more in our very life than we have known up till now. More of what is most important to us. However we might speak of that, however we might language that, whether we talk about truth or beauty, peace or freedom, 
justice or liberation. These words that refer to particular territories of human possibility, they come alive, they become more available the more fully we give ourselves to the life that we have which is right here and right now and always and only in this location. And so our invitation and our practice is to sit, to walk, to stand, to be here on the earth, beneath the sky, under the stars and amidst the breeze and see what we might discover by giving ourselves wholeheartedly to this. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. And may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to deepen in our knowing of what is truly precious and truly important. And may that grow ever fuller, deeper in our lives and in our world. for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, and for the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.